Good morning. My name is Nikki Sneed. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 40, verses 1 through 23, which can be found on page 33 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's Genesis 40, verses 1 through 23. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, We are going to be in that chapter this morning, but let me... uh, First, make some announcements. Um, I am Sergey Marchenko. I'm one of your pastors and elders. 
that's not an announcement. As children are leaving, let's let's pray again. Lord Holy Spirit, we pray that that you would would help us, that you would teach us, that you would change us, that you would glorify Jesus through your holy word this morning for the sake of your people. Amen. All right, so please get your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 40. We are going through this series of sermons about Joseph, familiar story to many of us, and The angle we're taking has to do with God's conspiracy, so we're looking at this as an elaborate conspiracy where all these different circumstances are arranged in just such a way as to produce God's good purposes for his people. So let me recap so far what we've learned. Joseph, favored by his father Jacob, had dreams, had two dreams of becoming the leader of his clan. But when he was just 17... His jealous brothers who wanted to kill him, originally that was their plan, then they decided to sell him into slavery instead, and they did that. So at 17 years old, Joseph is sold into slavery. He ends up in a house of an Egyptian official. Again, not by accident, God is supervising all these events. Joseph is entrusted with running his master's household and his business, so a great responsibility. And then he is framed by his master's wife, who claims that he had assaulted her, and he is thrown into prison. And this is where we find him today. So Joseph is in prison. Again, in prison, he's placed in position of influence and trust. Everywhere he goes, he is recognized as someone who could be trusted and who can fulfill these responsibilities. And yet, he has very little hope of getting out of this prison. Now, this is what happens in our chapter today. There are two other people in the prison. There are many others, but there are two that are very significant. They're officials in Pharaoh's court. They both fell into uh, disgrace with their master, their king. And so they're placed in this prison. And they have dreams. And now the dreamer, Joseph, is interpreting other people's dreams. And the dreams mean that one of them is going to be restored to his position of influence, and the other is going to be executed by Pharaoh. And so the one who is going to be restored, now Joseph is imploring him, the cupbearer, he's imploring him to remember Joseph when he is restored, to talk to Pharaoh on his behalf so Joseph could be released because Joseph is innocent, and he recounts his story to the cupbearer. Cupbearer is, in fact, released, and then our chapter ends with these words. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So for two more years, Joseph stays in prison, forgotten by everyone. Now it's easy for us to jump ahead to chapter 41, when Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. But that's next week. What I want us to do is I want us to linger in prison a little bit. Thirteen years passed between Joseph's being sold into slavery and his exaltation in in Pharaoh's court. So there's thirteen years where he's either in Potiphar's house as a slave or he's in prison. We don't know exactly how it breaks breaks down here. But for thirteen years, he's suffering largely forgotten by everyone. These thirteen years are important 
to us as believers to consider. So this is how we're going to approach it. Here's my outline. First, let's look at the man behind bars. Let's look at Joseph. What kind of person was Joseph before he was rescued and promoted by Pharaoh? Secondly, let's look at the God on the cross. So the man behind bars, the God on the cross. I'll show how what happened to Jesus helps us understand what happened to Joseph. And finally, thirdly, we'll look at the people in the pews. And you're saying, hey, that's me. I'm in the pews today. Yes, it's you and it's me, and we're going to apply this story directly to our lives. So the man behind bars first. As you think about Joseph in prison, think about him being failed by his father through his favoritism, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers, and then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Uh, And then he was banished by Potiphar, who didn't believe him, or at least didn't believe him completely. Soon he's going to be forgotten by the ungrateful cupbearer. Now, what kind of person do we expect to see in these circumstances? Maybe we expect someone who has given up on hope. It's a reasonable expectation, I think. After 13 years in slavery or prison, you figure some people would give up on hope. Maybe we would expect to see someone who is bitter, or angry. Maybe someone who is deeply disappointed in God. Maybe someone who is self-absorbed and self-centered or defensive or vindictive. All those are reasonable expectations given the circumstances of Joseph's life. And yet, none of those things are true about Joseph. I'd like us to look at three remarkable traits of Joseph's character. These are the same traits that you will find in many other believers who suffer well. Those who have learned to suffer well will exhibit the same characteristics that we see in Joseph. So first, notice how compassionate Joseph is towards others. Notice how compassionate Joseph is. Now these two prisoners are given into Joseph's care, Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer. Now, when you think about a baker or a cupbearer, that to us, it doesn't seem like those are important people. But in Egypt, in the king's court, these are very, very important people. Because that job, being a baker to the king or being a cupbearer or a wine pourer to the king, gives you direct access to the king. And the closer you were to the king, the more influence you had, the more political favors you can provide for other people, you could sort of sort of helped the king make a decision that was favorable to you or your friends or your family. So these are important people. These are government officials. Now they fell out of favor and now they're in prison, but we know from, and you know from many movies where, where in medieval times or other ancient times, somebody goes into prison, then they're pulled out of prison again, they're exalted again and restored. Apparently that happened quite a bit. So the prison keeper is careful not to get on the wrong side of these important people. So he wants to care for them well in case they get restored to their previous position of influence and power. So he assigns Joseph the job of caring for them. So now, not only Joseph is in prison for something he did not do, he is now ordered to serve some disgraced politicians. Now, how would you feel about that? 
He could have done it begrudgingly, the bad attitude complaining how unfair life was. Or he could have used his position to treat the baker and the cupbearer poorly, maybe in some way even to take out his frustration on them, because he could, he had that kind of power in the prison. But look at what Joseph does instead, verses 6 and 7. When Joseph came to them in the morning, to the cupbearer and the baker, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? He notices that they are troubled. He is wondering why their faces are downcast that particular morning. Do you see how considerate Joseph was? He was paying attention to how the other prisoners were feeling on a particular day. He was ready to encourage someone who was having a particularly difficult day. Now remember, this is prison, right? Why do you feel so troubled? I'm in prison. It's not good for me. Why is your face downcast? I'm in prison. That's, that's why. And yet Joseph is able to, he's able to see the difference between the normal sadness over being in prison and that particular morning's uh, sadness in the faces of these two people. Now, I find it remarkable that Joseph is so compassionate. Now, he is himself suffering too. He has his own struggles, and yet he seeks to encourage others in his prison. Now, you may have had something like that happen to you, maybe not in prison, but maybe in a different circumstance, maybe in church, when after the service somebody comes to you and they put their arm around you and they, and they say, how are you doing today? And you know they mean it. You know they really want to know how you are doing. You also know that their life is very difficult. And when they're saying, can I pray for you? You're thinking, I need to be praying for you. In fact, we all should be praying for you right now. And yet you are interested in me this morning. Have you had that experience where someone who is suffering and struggling, and you don't expect them to be noticed in anyone else, and yet they are so careful to try to encourage you or me or someone else? Now this is what's happening here. Joseph has his own sorrows, and yet... He seeks to encourage these two prisoners, considerate, compassionate. Now, secondly, let's notice how conscious Joseph is of God's presence. Joseph is considerate of others, and he is conscious of God's presence. Verse 8, they said to him, so the cupbearer and the baker, they answer Joseph's question, and they say, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the cupbearer and the baker tell Joseph that they had these dreams the night before, and there is no one to interpret them. Now, in Egypt, interpretation of dreams was a big deal. In fact, they had whole schools set up to train people in interpretation of dreams. They were called houses of life. And here... These two officials that were probably used to using interpreters like that when they were in court, now they have no professional to turn to to interpret their dreams. And so they're obviously upset. They don't know what they mean. And potentially their future may depend on what the gods are telling them in their dreams. 
So Joseph says, you don't need a professional. Dreams belong to God. Tell them, and I'll give you the interpretation. So Joseph right away brings God into the conversation. That's his first thing he says. He says, don't interpretation belong to God? Making us think that Joseph is conscious of God's presence. He's thinking about God. He's in communion with God. He's not ignoring God. There's no distance between him and God. I want to point out the ease with which Joseph brings God into the conversation. Obviously, he's living a life with God. Derek Kidner, one of the commentators I use, said that it was the habit of his mind, that it was the habit of Joseph's mind to bring God up, to think about God, to include God in conversations. He did not try to ignore God as we might expect. Someone in his position may have been disillusioned in God and didn't want to think about God, and yet Joseph is thinking about God and bringing God into conversations, living in communion with God even as he was suffering. So he was considerate of others. He was conscious of God's presence. And finally, thirdly, notice how confident Joseph is that God can use him. He's confident that God can still use him, even in prison, even as he's suffering. Verse 8, Joseph says, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Please tell them to me. He's saying, I can be an interpreter of your dreams on behalf of God. So Joseph is not only pointing to God as someone who knows how the dreams work and and is able to interpret them, but he puts himself as the potential interpreter of dreams for these two officials. The logic here is God can interpret dreams. I know God. Tell your dreams to me. Maybe I can help. That's what he's thinking. So there is a readiness to be used by God. He's saying, I know God, God knows dreams, I'm here, maybe God can use me to help these two prisoners. Now this reminds me of another believer in captivity who volunteered to interpret a dream. In Daniel 4, you may remember that story, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he calls all his wise men, again, schools of of training for interpreting dreams and, and all those kind of things. And so he calls these wise men, they come and And the king says, I have a dream, and I need you to help me interpret what it is. And they're saying, great, tell us the dream. We'll tell you the interpretation. They're thinking, we can figure something out that sounds halfway true. And the king says, I'm not going to tell you my dream. If you know how to interpret dreams, you should also know what the dream is. And they're saying, that we can't do. And so they try and try and try. And finally, the king is so angry at his wise men that he says, I'm going to kill all of you because none of you are any good to me. So Daniel finds out, and Daniel is this Jewish exile at the Babylonian court, and he finds out and he says, wait a minute, we know God. God knows dreams. Let's pray so God will reveal to us the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so he calls on his friends and they pray, and the Lord does in fact reveal what the dream was and what the interpretation was, and Daniel is able to not only help the king, but spare the lives of all the wise men in Babylon. So the same confidence we see in Joseph here, here that we saw in, in Daniel. Not only does he believe that God knows the dreams, but he also believes that God can use him as his spokesman. And that's a foreign idea to most of us, I think. We may believe certain things about God, but do we believe that those things are so true 
that God can work through us to accomplish something that we believe He can do? Are we so available to Him that we would say, God knows dreams, I know God, maybe I could be useful to interpret someone's dream. Well, Joseph, by this account, was not the kind of person we might expect him to be given his circumstances, right? He's not bitter, he's not self-absorbed, he seems to be very, very open with his services, he wants to help, he's compassionate, he's conscious of what God is doing, available to him. So the question is why? Why is it that Joseph did not get bitter? Because we know many people do get bitter under these circumstances. Why did he not get self-absorbed? We know that suffering makes many people just focus on their own pain to the exclusion of all of their relationships in their lives. Why did Joseph not get disillusioned in God? I mean, you're in prison, right? You went from a household slave to a prisoner. This, This is not a good move. Where is God? What is God doing? It's easy to get disillusioned in God, and yet Joseph is not disillusioned in God. He's not bitter. He's not self-absorbed. Here's the answer to why Joseph was different, why we can be different as well. So please go with me to the previous chapter. This is Genesis 39. And this is after Joseph was framed by Potiphar's wife and thrown in prison. And this is what we read in Genesis 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Now, God's presence with Joseph is very important. But there's something more specific here that's happening. The Lord is showing Joseph steadfast love. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible... When you see that in the Old Testament, you see steadfast love in the Old Testament, you're saying this is a huge concept throughout the Scriptures that is developing and and there's different aspects to it, but this is a central theme in Scripture. And in the Old Testament, it's, it's one Hebrew word. It's translated differently in our English Bibles. Some of you probably have loving kindness or Uh, Covenant faithfulness or steadfast love, as ESV does the Bible, uh, the translation that we use here at Chatham. But all that speaks to this idea of God's faithful commitment that's based on His promises, on His covenant to His people. There's the steadfastness to it. God doesn't give up. God continues to be committed to His people. He continues to love them. He continues to provide for them. Even when they are not faithful to God... God remains faithful to them. We see that play out throughout the Old Testament. Even when God's people walk away from God, God doesn't really let them go. He may discipline them, but He never really lets them go. So in the New Testament, the word that we use for the same idea is grace. Those are the two words that talk about the same idea, the same trait in God's heart. Grace is this idea that God loves the unlovable, that God forgives the undeserving, that He pardons the guilty, that He justifies sinners, that He adopts spiritual orphans. And the whole Bible hinges on this one idea of grace or steadfast love. Christianity is based on this one conviction that God loves the unlovable, that God is gracious to sinners. No one can be a Christian unless they understand and accept that God loves us by grace and not based on our accomplishments. 
whether it's moral accomplishments or religious or political or ethical accomplishments or whatever they may be. God doesn't love us based on what we do or who we are. God loves us based on who He is and what He has done for us. That's steadfast love, that's grace, that's covenant in Scripture. Now Joseph knew that God was steadfastly committed to him because God was speaking to him about his steadfast love. God was explaining that and modeling it for him even as he was present with him in suffering. So Joseph knew, he got it, he got grace, he knew that God was committed to him however dark his life seemed. Joseph knew that God made a covenant, a promise to care for his family and for him. You see, he knew about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember, Jacob was his father. So this is just a generation removed from these amazing renewals of the covenant that happened with Jacob. And so Joseph knows that he gets grace, he understands, and he's able now to apply it into his circumstances. He knows that the fulfillment of that covenant promise to take care of God's people depended on God himself. And God was with him and God was telling him that. And so Joseph trusted God. Joseph knew that even if he was forgotten by the cub bearer, God did not forget him because God had steadfast love towards his people. Joseph knew that grace did not run out on him. So even though for 13 years he is wrestling with his circumstances and it's very difficult and it's very painful, he knows that God is a steadfastly loving God and God is with him, that God will never forget him. That's why Joseph remained in communion with God throughout his hardships. He knew that God did not abandon him and that God was still working out his good purposes for his covenant people. That's why Joseph was considerate of others. You see, if you believe in grace, why would you ever look down on anyone else? If God loves you by grace, how can I be judgmental towards anyone else? It's God's undeserved grace after all. That's why Joseph was confident that God might still use him because in his mind he's thinking, God is working out his covenant promises in my life. And so I want to be useful to God. Grace always motivates us to serve God. So this is the kind of person Joseph was. This is why I think he was that way. And now the question is, do we know that kind of grace? Joseph only knew grace because of God's covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We have a much clearer and much more powerful picture of God's grace before us. We have the New Testament. We have Jesus. We have God on the cross. And when you think about God on the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, we see God's grace portrayed for us in all its power, in all its glory, in all its ability to transform our character and make us react differently to our circumstances. And that does happen, and all of us have stories of people we know, even if it's not ourselves, who react to suffering the way Joseph reacted to his suffering. You see, grace is God's free love toward us. It's undeserved. God gives it freely. It's a gift. God commits to love us. And yet it's not free for Him. It's free for us, but it's not free for God. It's costly to God. 
So for God to extend forgiveness to us, our sin must still be punished. If our accomplishments are a poor foundation for our relationship with God, what is a better foundation? Whose accomplishments can be so great that they can guarantee God's ongoing, unceasing, unrelenting commitment to us? Now this dilemma was resolved on the cross when Jesus, the perfect Son of God, died in place of sinners. His accomplishments, not ours, are the sure basis for our relationship with God. Our sins were atoned for. All of our sins were atoned for. Jesus was made guilty so that we can be forgiven. So God can extend grace to us at the cost of His Son's life. Now, let me say that we cannot imagine what Jesus experienced on the cross. We can't imagine that. There are descriptions of that in Scripture. We pray along those lines, right? We sing songs that try to grasp that. But we cannot imagine what it was like for Jesus to experience what he did on the cross. He took infinite punishment to extend infinite love. Now, much like Joseph, Jesus was abandoned and betrayed by others. That's true. Just like Joseph, there was a lot of physical and emotional pain in Jesus' life. That's also true. We get those things. We can relate to those things. But Joseph was never abandoned by God. Joseph never experienced that. He had God's steadfast love with him. He had God's presence with him. Over and over, Scripture says the Lord was with Joseph. But Jesus experienced something that is unimaginable to us. Now, when we went to adopt our youngest uh, Evangeline from an orphanage in Ukraine, I remember just just feeling, having this, this strong reaction to seeing kids that had been abandoned by their parents. And we were in a nicer orphanage, so I, it's hard for me to imagine, because there were, there were places, even in the complex of orphanages that we were in, that we were not allowed to go. And presumably because the conditions were so poor that they didn't want any outsiders to see it. So I wasn't even there. I was in the nicer part of the orphanage. And I, and I remember this, this sense of abandonment. These kids being forsaken by their parents, rejected by their parents. Many of them with special needs. And knowing how the system works in Ukraine, <clears throat> many of them were abandoned at birth, at the hospital, never saw their home, were taken right into state custody. And so you think about that, and, and, and it was emotionally very hard, especially because we knew we were, we were taking one child out of it, but there were so many other children. And it's hard. It's hard just, just in a human emotional state to deal with those things. And yet, and yet, that cannot compare... <laughs> in any meaningful way, to the sense of abandonment that Jesus experienced on the cross. Now, we're talking about temporal abandonment here. We're talking about parents deciding not to be with their children. We're talking about maybe not providing for children. Those are all very, very painful things to experience yourself or to see as others experience it. And yet, it cannot even compare to the cosmic abandonment 
that Jesus experienced on the cross. When we talk about Jesus being forsaken, right? We're talking about, we just sang the song, Jesus was forsaken, he was rejected, he was abandoned, he was forgotten. What we're talking about is that all of that happened in the cosmic, eternal, universal way. The quality of what Jesus experienced was infinite, was eternal, was cosmic. I'm using these words, that's the best words I can find to get close to this, right? I know I can't get really close, but I want to at least point the way to what it might have been like for Jesus. When Jesus experienced that on the cross, that's incomprehensible to us, that's unimaginable to us. Now that's grace, because he did that for us so he could love us. Jorgen Moltmann says, Jesus died crying out to God, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All Christian theology and all Christian life is basically an answer to the question which Jesus asked as he died. So when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was crying out to God, My God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? And Moltmann says that all Christian theology and all Christian life is basically an answer to the question which Jesus asked on the cross as he was experiencing this divine abandonment. And so true Christian theology must be cross-centered. True Christian life must be fundamentally and decisively shaped by the cross of Christ. The whole point of our faith, the whole point of Scripture, the whole point of us gathering here and talking to each other and singing is to proclaim that Jesus was rejected so we could be accepted with God. Jesus was abandoned so we could be adopted into God's family. He was made an orphan in the cosmic sense so we could be welcomed into God's family as His beloved children. Jesus was forsaken so we could be loved and treasured and protected by our God. That's the whole point of us doing anything. That's why we're here this morning is to proclaim that, to remind ourselves, to believe that again, to tell others about that, that Jesus was forgotten so that we could be eternally remembered by God. The God who forgot Jesus on the cross like the cupbearer forgot Joseph in our story, can never forget us. God who forgot Jesus on the cross can never forget His people who claim His Son as their Savior. That cannot happen because of what happened to Jesus on the cross. That cosmic abandonment in our place, on our behalf, results in the cosmic love towards us from our Father. There's another great parallel between Joseph and Jesus that we read the passage at Call to Worship. Let me read this again. This is Luke 23, verses 39 and following. Luke 23, 39. Here we have two people's fates decided again, just like, just like we had that in, in Genesis 40. One dream proclaimed that the, the cupbearer was going to be restored and blessed, The other dream, Baker's dream, proclaimed that he was going to be executed by Pharaoh. 
And here, there's one like the baker who would go on to eternal death because he rejects Jesus on the cross. And there's the other who, like the cupbearer, would be restored and be remembered in God's kingdom. Let me read the passage, Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. So Jesus is crucified. There are two people on either side. They're criminals justly being punished for their crimes. One of the criminals who who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now this is a mocking remark. He's scoffing. But the other, who takes it seriously, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He's saying, we're all here because we're all criminals. That's supposed to happen to us. And we indeed justly, so he understands that he is guilty and his friend is guilty. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, he understands grace. He's saying, yes, I am guilty. I'm supposed to die. Of course I'm supposed to die. But this man who's dying did not do anything wrong, and yet he's dying, and somehow his death may bring me into the kingdom. So Jesus, the one who's dying, please remember me when you you come into paradise so I could be with you in your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, this is the promise that Jesus makes, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Grace is working. The one who asks to be received into God's kingdom on behalf of Jesus is in fact received into God's kingdom because Jesus promises that that would happen. The compassion of Jesus. He's dying, right? He's suffering, He knows that that he is so close to being cosmically abandoned by his father. And yet, he's noticing that someone is asking him for help. That someone is reaching out to him and saying, remember me, remember me. He's got nothing to offer. There's no benefit to Jesus. Jesus says, I will remember you. And today you will be with me in paradise. Because Jesus was forgotten... We will always be remembered by God, just like this thief was. That is the gospel. That is the one message we proclaim all the time. That is the one message that can turn people from bitter sufferers into these compassionate people. People who are considerate of others. People who sense God's presence. People who are available to be used of God even when they are hurting. The gospel changes us. This this message of grace can change us. So what does it mean to us? I'm already getting into the application, so let's talk about that. What does it mean for us? What does it mean to the people in the pews? You're listening to this message. Every, Every Sunday you listen to it. Every time you read scripture, you hear this. What does it mean? I believe this is immediately applicable. This is this is relevant to everyone who is here. The relevance is going to be different, but it's relevant to everyone who is here listening to this message. This is how. Many of us today are remembering what happened on this day 15 years ago. The question that many people had then and have now is, where was God on 9-11? 
I'm sure if you do a Google search, you will get lots of articles with those titles, lots of threads on social media. Where was God on 9-11? In fact, today in some churches, if you get a bulletin, the sermon's title is going to be just that. Where is God when we suffer? Or where was God on 9-11? How could God let something like that happen to people like us? Now, many felt then and feel now abandoned by God, forsaken, forgotten by God. I understand. If our idea of God is a, is a generic idea of a benevolent being, then when something bad happens, we must question. We must question if God is the way we think He is. And if He doesn't do what we expect Him to do, of course, it raises all sorts of questions about Him. And every bad Hollywood movie has this premise. I used to believe in God, and then something bad happened. And how can I ever believe in God? Such a common story. It's true. Many people struggle with that. It's a real question that people have. So things are different when our idea of God is not a generic idea of a benevolent being. But when we think of God as the God of the cross, as the God of Jesus, as the Father of the one who was crucified for us. If God was willing to abandon his own son to cosmic destruction so that he can love us forever, how can he ever, why would he ever abandon us? If your God is the God of Jesus, if your God is the God of the cross, that's the answer. How could God do that? God couldn't do that. How could God abandon us? God can't abandon us. Because He is the God of Jesus. He's the God of the cross. He already showed us what He feels about us and what He thinks about us. So just like Joseph who looked at the walls of his cell and the bars on his window and remembered God's steadfast love, we too must say the God of grace, the God of the cross does not abandon his people. So even this, even prison in Joseph's case, even 9-11 in our case, even cancer, even the pain of a broken relationship, even the loss of a loved one, even poverty, even disability, even mental illness cannot be interpreted as evidence of God's rejection, but only as mysterious means of accomplishing his good purposes for his Beloved people. Let me say this again. That even this, whatever this is in your life, and I'm going to put 9-11 into that category, and I'm going to put any tragedy, anything bad that happened to you or to us or to the nation or to the church in that category. Even this can never be interpreted as evidence of God's rejection. But only as mysterious means of accomplishing his good purposes for his beloved people. That is exactly what Joseph was doing. As unlikely as it may seem to you, if you're suffering and you're struggling with all this, this is exactly what Joseph was doing. We know that because of the way he's acting. You can only be compassionate towards others when you have made peace with your own suffering. You can only be conscious of God's presence if God is actually there and you know he's there. Right? You can only be confident that God will use you when you trust Him. You haven't lost your hope. You haven't lost your trust. You haven't become bitter if you're acting this way. 
So Joseph understands God's grace. Now, he doesn't have the whole picture as we do, but he has enough. He has the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He remembers the stories from Abraham, passed down to Isaac and passed down to Jacob and passed down to Joseph. The stories when God said, Abraham, I'm going to prove you how much I'm committed to you. Let's get some animals and sacrifice them. Let's cut them up. And God says, I'm the only one that's walking through this. Because if this covenant fails, I will be the only one responsible for the penalty. Of course the covenant fails, because we fail. And God says, my son is going to go on the cross and experience this cosmic level abandonment, cosmic level wrath, so that I can keep my covenant with my people. That's what Joseph knows. And he takes that and he says, what does it mean for me in my life right now? What does it mean? It means I can trust God. It means he can use me. It means I can love others around me. Even fellow prisoners, I can be, I can be compassionate towards them. Now let me push this deeper. Let me apply this to particular people. I'm not going to get everybody, but I'm hoping to get several, okay? If you are a child here, and I'm speaking to literal children, I'm also speaking to grown-up children, if you are a child who at one point in your life you've realized that your parents care more about their own pleasure, more about their own possessions, and more about their own pride than they care about you, And you know that, whether you're young or you've grown up and you remember that. Let me tell you that God loves you and that God is willing to do anything for you. He is not like your parents. We know that God is willing to do anything for us because Jesus gave up his power and gave up his pleasure and gave up his pride, gave up his glory, gave up his possessions to be with you. That's the reason why he did that. If today you are a teenager who has realized that there's no group you fit in, you've looked around in your middle school, in your high school, and you've looked around and you're saying, I fit nowhere. There's no one like me. There's no one who understands me. There's no one who accepts me for who I am. I do not have a real friend, I just have people who use me. Let me tell you that God loves you for you. And that he accepts you by grace the way you are. And that even more more than that, he is working, even through the rejection that you feel, to make you into a gloriously beautiful person he had imagined you to become when he carefully created you. This is God's truth. If today you cannot get get your mind off of feelings of guilt and shame and regret, please hear me. On God's authority, I speak to you and I say, thus says the Lord, you are accepted with God by grace, even if your mind cannot comprehend grace even if your heart cannot rest in grace, even if your body cannot accept it as true, that still is true on God's authority, that he loves you and accepts you by grace. If today when you return home, as some of you do, 
you will sit down, you put your face in your hands, and you cry because you feel so alone and there's literally no one in your life who understands and you can't imagine a deep conversation with anyone because of what you're feeling and what you're going through. Please know that God has not forsaken you. He has not forsaken you because He cannot forsake you. He is committed to you in His covenant forever. If you are in Christ, God can never forget you. If today you feel in some way rejected or abandoned or forsaken or forgotten, please accept this truth from God for you today that God has not forgotten you. Because Jesus was forgotten on the cross in your place, God can never forget you. Now I'm speaking to you of the same steadfast love that made Joseph conscious of God's presence and compassionate towards others and confident that God can use him, even in the midst of his own suffering. That's the same steadfast love. It's the same grace that is given to you. And that steadfast love is displayed for us on the cross of Jesus. So as you look at the cross... You behold what happened on the cross. You need to know that God has not forsaken you. That God is with you. That God will never forsake you. Listen to Henry Nouwen. He says, To us who cry out from the depth of our brokenness for a hand that will touch us, an arm that can embrace us, lips that will kiss us, a word that speaks to us here and now, and a heart that is not afraid of our fears and tremblings. To us who feel our pain as no other human being feels it, has felt it, or will ever feel it, and who are always waiting for someone who dares to come close, to us a man has come who could truly say, I am with you. Jesus Christ, who is God with us, has come to us in the freedom of love. That happened. The cross happened. Do you know Him? Because only in Him, only through Him, only for Him, only because of Him, we can be remembered, accepted, and embraced by God. Without Him, without Christ, we will have to bear our own sin. We will have to accept that our relationship with God is permanently broken. And we will be forgotten forever. As wonderful as it is to consider the possibility of being loved and accepted by God, it is terrifying to consider the alternative. And without Christ, that alternative is a certainty for us. C.S. Lewis ponders it. He says, in some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings... We can be both banished from the presence of Him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of Him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, Received, acknowledged. We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. That's where humanity lives, 
on the razor edge between those two possibilities, being fully embraced by God because of Christ, fully accepted, drawn in, called in, welcomed in His presence, or being utterly and forever rejected by God, be unspeakably ignored forever. In Christ, we are eternally remembered. Outside of Christ, we are eternally ignored. Which condition describes you, describes your life? If you are not in Christ, the way it happens, the way the entrance into Christ with all these benefits of being forever remembered by God, the way it happens is by simple faith that says, remember me, Jesus, in your kingdom. Remember me. So all it takes is a redirection of your heart towards Jesus, claiming Him as your Savior in faith. Remember, none of this is based on accomplishments. And praise God, it's not based on accomplishments. All of it is based on grace and the steadfast love of our Lord, who says, I will take you in, I will embrace you, I will love you in Jesus. I will never forget you. If you are a believer, and if you are remembered by God forever, I encourage you to come to this table as we take communion together. And what we see here at this table every week, that Jesus was broken, that he was rejected, that he was forgotten in our place for us, so that we can be healed and accepted and remembered by God forever. This is a reminder, but even more so, This is an opportunity for us to grasp these truths again and say, I don't understand it fully. I don't feel it fully. I don't obey it fully. But I need more of this. I need more of grace in my life. And so you come to the table with these thoughts. And you're saying, Lord, make me like Joseph. But even more so, make me like Jesus. So that when I am suffering, I am conscious of your presence and your plan. When I am suffering, I'm confident I can still be used by you. That all of this is it's, it's not accidental, it's purposeful. And that I can be compassionate towards others. There is a call for unbelievers to come to Christ here, but there's also a call for believers to go and tell others about this. And live in the way that reflects grace that has been given to us. One step is coming to the table. If you're a believer... You're welcome here. You don't need to be part of our church. You don't need to be a member. You just need to be in Christ, having responded to his offer of grace by faith. And so you come to the table to remember what he has done for us. If you're not a believer, I encourage you to take this time to think about Jesus. Consider the cross. Consider grace. Consider that in Christ you will never be forgotten by God, if you come to Him in faith. I will pray in a, in a second. After that, we'll come forward. We'll be singing a song to help keep our minds on the gospel. We'll come forward and take up communion up front here or take it back to our seats if you need more time to meditate. If you are unable to come forward, an elder will bring it to you. So if you're new here or we don't know, that you need assistance, please just raise your hand when we pass out communion. If you're on the balconies, there are tables set up for you there, so please just come forward where you are. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for who you are.
the God of the cross, the God of steadfast love, the God of grace, the Father of Jesus. The God who promised that he will never, that he can never forget his children. And Lord, I pray for us this morning. I pray that we would remember what happened on the cross and in the empty tomb and that we would take those things as your promises to never forget us. I know all of us come with with various struggles and it's hard to make application that fits absolutely everyone. But this message relates to everyone. All of us can come with whatever struggle, whatever we're feeling, whatever we're going through, whatever we're thinking. We can come with it to you and say, God, I know that you care. I know that you will never forsake me. You will never abandon me. Because you did forsake and you did abandon Jesus for me. That's proof enough that your love is steadfast. And so let us hold on to that. Let us grip it. Let us grasp it. Let us figure out a way to apply it into our particular circumstances. We confess that often we do get bitter and we often do get self-absorbed and we blame you and we blame others and we have no time for anybody else if we're suffering. But we pray that you would change us, that your grace would be so strong they will turn us into compassionate considerate, sensitive people that are concerned about others and are concerned about your purposes unfolding in our lives. Only your spirit can do that. No amount of intellectual understanding on our part can actually translate into a holy life. Your spirit has to apply it. Your spirit has to change us so that the gospel doesn't just ring true, but is existentially true for us as we live. So Lord, I pray that your Spirit would do that for us. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on Himself. Let's come to the table responsibly, in confession, in humility, and in rejoicing over God's grace in Christ.